Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 210, recorded on October 10th, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. This week, we get to start with a significant milestone in the port of Linux to the Apple M1. The Asahi Linux team reports they have a full desktop up and working on the M1, with the small exception of GPU acceleration. Which they are working on diligently, they say, uh, but they report that the CPU software acceleration is actually so fast on the M1 that the overall desktop experience still feels faster than something like the Rock Pro 64, which has native hardware acceleration. But no matter how you slice it, this is a major accomplishment. And with more driver work that's currently being done and already pending, it's just going to make the experience better and better. And on top of that driver work, the developers are beginning to adapt and figure out the unique ways that Apple has set up some of their devices, like the NVMe disk, for example, which differs quite a bit from how it would work on an x86 box. That might make you worry, then. What about future Apple hardware updates like the pending M1X or M2? Well, it looks like the compatibility situation with future hardware actually has the potential to be better than just about any other ARM platform Linux currently runs on. The project noted, quote, Apple is unique in putting emphasis on keeping hardware interfaces compatible across SOC generations. The UART hardware in the M1 dates all the way back to the original iPhone. This means we're in a unique position to be able to try writing drivers that will not only work for the M1, but may work unchanged on future chips as well. That would be remarkable if they could potentially leverage future architectures with current drivers that's pretty unheard of and you know apple's not doing this to make it easier for the team to port linux it's because it saves them a lot of work on future versions of their os it just happens to be a happy unintended consequence of apple making that experience better for themselves it means we could have a unique experience for linux users in the arm world and, and to be clear it's never going to be as great as if all of the hardware was open source and we had free drivers upstreamed for everything. That would be the utopian ideal. But it could have been a lot worse when it comes to M1 Town. In fact, the project states, quote, this is a very exciting opportunity in the ARM64 world. We won't know until Apple releases the M1X or M2, but if we succeed in making enough drivers forwards compatible to boot Linux on newer chips, that will make things like booting older distro installers possible on newer hardware. That is something people take for granted on x86, but it's usually impossible in the embedded world. We hope we can change that on these machines. There really are a surprising number of subsystems that make up a modern computer. And reading through this latest update, you get a very real sense of that. And well, at first, this task seemed nearly impossible. These days, it seems like we might have a real working thing in just a matter of weeks. The team says now one of their next major tasks is to extend the basic installer they have right now, aimed really just for developers, into something official that might actually have wider usage among, quote, adventurous users. <laughs> well, Alyssa Rosenwig tweeted that uh, the computer feels so fast that computers haven't been this fast since before she was born or something like that. Like it really they are. The team is really excited. I'm excited to, because I think these have a lot of potential to be low power servers. You know, if you can get Linux running on these really well, a Mac mini 
maxed out CPU load is somewhere around 33, 36 watts. So it's competitive with some smaller board computers, but with just exponentially more horsepower. And so that's an area where I'm excited for the Asahi Linux team to succeed. But clearly they're shooting towards the desktop. And this installer, well, that's going to mean more and more people can try this out. Maybe we're going to get more bug reports. The initial version is going to guide you through resizing your macOS install. It's going to be intended to be a dual boot scenario. You'll make space for Linux. It'll install their mini bootloader and U-boot. It'll set up an EFI partition for you. And then the installer will optionally install a pre-built distro and its bootloader. And well, get this. <laughs> Initially, it's going to be Arch, by the way. Another platform we're watching with quite a bit of interest is RISC-V. Essential bits of support continue to land upstream in the kernel, and this week, that list includes a significant enterprise and power user feature. No kidding. I mean, I could see how this would be important on a server, and I could see how those of us that want to build a RISC-V workstation would love to see this too. And that is, in Linux 5.16, KVM virtualization support for the RISC-V platform will land. This is a huge amount of work, work that's been going on for a while and has recently sped up. There were some patches that came in, some final revisions that went through, and it looks good for 5.16. And with faster and faster RISC-V processors on the long-term roadmap, having this hypervisor support in Linux soon means when these devices land, well, things should be ready to go in the kernel. And in user space. QEMU was already updated and has its RISC-V support in place. Canonical has announced and released Ubuntu Frame. It's for display purposes only. <laughs> That's because Ubuntu Frame is a full-screen shell based on Wayland and offers compatibility with existing graphical toolkits such as Flutter, Qt, GTK, and of course, web-based apps. Frame is designed for interactive displays, and offers interfaces to handle input from touchscreens, keyboard, and a traditional mouse. Developers can get started building apps for Frame on any system that supports Snaps, and should make it pretty straightforward to get started. And of course, as you might expect, Snaps play a pretty significant role in both application distribution and in security. And that means the display server and other system apps running on the Frame are isolated from the vendor's applications. This is done by leveraging Snaps application confinement Canonical also uses this to force apps to only talk to the Ubuntu Frame server via what Canonical calls a secure socket. The promise made to developers with Ubuntu Frame is basically that they won't have to waste time integrating and maintaining all the custom code that might typically be required to use Linux in this way. Instead, Canonical will do that and help manage the security. And while maybe not all that innovative and new technology that's being introduced here with the Ubuntu Frame, what is innovative about this is the stacking of technologies that Canonical is already really familiar with, and then packaging all of that together, and then niching down on a specific market, and pitching a solution directly to them. That's a pretty clever package, and that market wasn't going to put all these different technologies together and build their own solution, and Canonical can also provide support with the product. In fact, the Ubuntu Frame comes with 10 years of security updates when used in conjunction with Ubuntu Core, and Canonical says it's already being used by at least one customer. The Lenovo Intelligent Devices Group is using the Ubuntu Frame in order to make it easier for customers to create smart retail and digital signage solutions. If you are interested, you can get more information in an upcoming webinar scheduled to take place on November 3rd. We have a link in the show notes. Another week, another desktop position is opening at Red Hat. 
This week, it's been spotted that the Red Hat desktop team is looking for a software engineer in Spain. The role will be responsible for, quote, developing and maintaining containerization technologies for software development like Toolbox. They go on to say that you need a proficiency in Go or C, containers, certain kernel APIs, and, well, of course, the Linux desktop itself. What really seems like news here is the larger meta story around Red Hat continuing to hire and fill well-paying jobs to work on the Linux desktop. Absolutely. When Jim Whitehurst stepped down, I was vocal about my concerns that maybe IBM wouldn't be all that motivated in future investments in the Linux desktop. After all, they don't particularly sell a desktop product outside of some small commercial deployments. So I, I was really kind of worried that the bottom line, the bean counters would strike all of these investments. But I don't know. I mean, it's still early days since the announcement, but seems like we've been seeing week after week almost Red Hat is making direct investments in the Linux desktop. I also think it's kind of like a particularly good kind of sign that they're investing in a tool like Toolbox, which is just, it's just a great resource for developers on a Linux workstation. It's, it's one of those kind of invest in the developers kind of investments. Yeah, not only are they doubling down on some of our favorite technologies like Toolbox, they're also trying to solve some of the harder problems in the desktop space. I mean, just over the summer, we saw Red Hat hire two new graphics developers, announce a renewed investment in Pipewire and improving the video stack for Linux, open a position to finally improve HDR support, work directly with NVIDIA to enable Wayland support in their driver, and hire a principal software engineer to work on LLVM and Clang. And that's on top of the numerous developers they already employ, projects like GNOME, Fedora, LVFS, and so many others that make what we know today as the modern Linux desktop remotely possible. They play a pretty critical role in the ecosystem. So it was understandable to be concerned when Whitehurst stepped down. I mean, can we trust IBM with a role this important? But I agree. It's also really reassuring to see these positions open up. I mean, it's more than just words. It's real action and dollars that will result in some measurable benefits for all desktop Linux users. But that doesn't mean we're taking our eye off them. We're always watching. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support the show. We host everything these days on Linode. They have 11 data centers around the world, and they've really refined this into a lean, mean running machine. Some of the things that I love about Linode is their powerful DNS manager and their overall cloud dashboard to begin with. It makes it really quick to get started. I can go check on my systems super fast. And also, I'll often just log into Linode and look at the different systems they have to deploy or the different applications they have available. Like, for example, they have Alma Linux and Rocky Linux now. So if that was something you were thinking about checking out, within a few seconds, you could get that deployed. And if you're playing around with our $100 credit, that's a great way to learn. They also have one-click deployment applications that make it really easy to get up and started with an entire stack built in an intelligent way. Like, maybe you want to experiment with VS Code Server. Why not have your own private editor up in the cloud? They make that possible with a single click. 
One of the features we're always finding new uses for is their S3 compatible object storage. Like for example, we use that with Nextcloud. So that way our team can keep working when we're uploading files and we don't have to constantly manage and struggle with disk space usage. But it's one of those things you can really just go check out for yourself and really get a sense of why it's so great. Because it's not one particular feature or thing. It's everything about Linode combined with their fantastic customer support and their long-term commitment to the Linux community combined with great servers that have super high-end hardware, 40 gigabit connections coming into the hypervisors, brand new PCIe MVME storage, AMD Epic processors on the high-end, and then honestly, combining it with a great price, 30 to 50% cheaper than the other major cloud providers. Linode is dedicated to offering the best in virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. So go sign up today, linode.com LAN. Get $100 in 60-day credit on your new account, and you support Linux Action News. That's linode.com slash LAN. And thank you to Ting, linux.ting.com. Ting is a mobile virtual network operator. That means instead of digging holes in the ground to put up towers, they're taking advantage of the existing large carrier networks and focusing on customer support and great deals. And Ting has a great mix of plans and fast data on LTE and 5G. Their plans are simple and straightforward. I've been a Ting customer since 2013, and I can tell you there's never been a better time to switch to Ting. They're the smarter version of mobile. If the carriers had to hit reset today and enter the market today, this is how they'd all have to do it. Ting has plans that start at like $10 a month and go up to like $55 a month. And they have great plans for family that let you mix and match what you need, like unlimited talk and text with just the right amount of data. And speaking of data, if you're just willing to download your podcast and sync your music and do that kind of stuff on Wi-Fi before you hit the road, you can save so much money a month with Ting. That could be a great little life hack right there. And every single plan gets access to Ting's award-winning customer service with nationwide LTE and 5G coverage. But the best part, no contracts ever. And it's simple to switch to Ting. Pretty much any phone will work because they got so many networks they support. So get started. Head over to linux.ting.com. Check your current phone, create an account, pick the plan that's right for you. Ting will send you a SIM card, you pop that sucker in, and you're going to get activated in minutes. It's smooth, it's great, it's fantastic. It's linux.ting.com. The next generation of Ting Mobile is here. Go see how much you could save, and then take $25 off of that. linux.ting.com. After a lot of smoke around a secret SUSE project, it seems we've got some real fire this week. When Red Hat staffer and all-around great guy Carl George noticed a new distro name showing up in the Apple repo logs. If you're not familiar with Apple, we'll have a link in the notes. Carl saw 38 hits for a RHEL-based distribution called SUSE Liberty Linux. A seemingly strong confirmation of a much-rumored rebuild of Red Hat Enterprise Linux managed by SUSE. So, dear listener, behind the scenes, we've been trying to confirm various rumors from various sources for weeks that SUSE had launched an internal Skunk Works effort to create a Red Hat Enterprise clone like traditional CentOS shortly after the stream transition was announced. And while that does seem a little far-fetched at first, it's actually, it's, it's logically pretty possible when one sees that this could just be a potential expansion of their already existing enterprise service that they offer called Expanded Support. That service provides patch services for SUSE and Red Hat Enterprise systems. Only they like to offer prices lower than if you were paying Red Hat directly. 
Yeah, so it would make sense to presume then that a lot of the back-end infrastructure they needed to build all those rail packages was just already in place because they were working on this cheaper-than-Red Hat patching service. But I also seem to recall OpenSUSE tweeting some Tonya Harding memes teasing CentOS over the stream announcement. It occurs to me that wouldn't this offering kind of compete directly with their own SUSE Enterprise Linux offering? I mean, this move would kind of be putting themselves in the same position Red Hat was in, forcing their expensive commercial enterprise Linux distribution to compete with their free enterprise Linux distribution. Isn't that exactly where Red Hat used to find itself with CentOS in the old days? (laughs) You're completely right. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Wow, they're recreating the same exact problem that Red Hat moved Earth and mountains and rivers to get out of. Like, (laughs) that's pretty ironic. And only this time, it's not even the same code base that their product's based on or even based on a product that they control. But I'm actually just more struck by what almost seems like an implicit statement being made here by the enterprise shop at Seuss. This is the business side of the house. And they're kind of implicitly stating with this move that RHEL is the de facto enterprise operating system. And to be clear... There has been no official announcement yet. We'll keep an eye out, but these 38 hits in the repo logs line up exactly with the rumors we've been hearing, even down to the name. Also of note recently was an apparent decision made by CERN to stick with CentOS Stream. Many in the CentOS community have been watching to see where this influential group would end up. In a presentation delivered on September 15th on behalf of the CERN IT group, and we have the slides linked in the notes, the presentation gave a real clear-eyed view of the overall CentOS picture we have today. And it seems they've been evaluating CentOS Stream for some time. And the results have been good. The group said, quote, Going forward, we propose to target CentOS Stream 8 as the standard distribution for experiments. In particular, they liked having access to the latest software and tools from Red Hat, and that the rate of change, e.g. system updates, was not as scary as they initially thought. It's a direct quote. They also liked that the overall system update stability was great, and the feeling that the strong CentOS ecosystem meant that migrating to other options down the road would be, quote, straightforward if an issue with Stream did happen to arise. And their evaluations did show that CentOS Stream had a higher update frequency than traditional CentOS. And it also showed that they had faster iterations of smaller changes in Stream. But perhaps most importantly, they observed an overall much faster CVE response time in CentOS Stream. For those reasons and more, they concluded that CentOS Stream 8 would be a supported and recommended operating system for new installations and they're already planning to recommend and support CentOS Stream 9 once released. Reading through the presentation, I found it to be pretty fascinating. It's a quick read, too. So I I don't know. I recommend it if you're interested in this stuff at all. But I think no matter how you shake this situation, this is a big and I would argue an important endorsement for CentOS Stream. If Cernic came out and said they were were going a different direction, um, you know, that would have been a big loss for the project. And I think it suggests that some, some of these doom and gloom predictions that came after the stream announcement, they might have been misplaced. Maybe people should have waited a little bit to see how things shake out because it seems overall the Linux community now has better options than we ever did before any of this started. 
And we now actually have like a real enterprise Linux community forming at the distribution level, which I'm kind of shocked we didn't really have that before. It's a significant land shift in Linux's most critical market. And it's a shift for the better. I agree. And we're going to keep an eye on this and everything else that's going on these days. Check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And don't miss our Ubuntu 21.10 review. Yep, it's that time of year, and it's coming up this week in Linux Unplugged, episode 427. And we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us. And that's all the news for this week. <laughs>